1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be. We're going to finish up chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians tonight as we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians. And as we, when we finish that, we'll go through 2 Thessalonians. The, uh, this first part, all the way up through the third chapter, Paul has been really just talking about uh, the church there and his relationship with the church and, and why he had sent Timothy and why he's writing this letter and this sort of thing. And he had words of com- commendation. And so we're going to finish up that section. And then next week, when we get to chapter 4, it's where Paul starts giving some more concrete instructions as far as Christian living and that sort of thing. He starts answering some of the questions that the Thessalonians had. So we're going to finish up that part tonight in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. I'm just going to read the first verse there, verse 6, and then we're going to break it down into two or three different sections here. But look at verse 6. It says this, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. So if you remember, Paul was reached the point where he could not stand it anymore. He didn't know if the Thessalonians were still holding on to their faith because of the persecution they were dealing with. He didn't have enough time to disciple them properly. It was a short period of time there. And so he eventually reached the point where he was so concerned, he couldn't stand it anymore. So he and Silas sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. And, uh, and, and to comfort them and to encourage them and to strengthen them. And now Timothy, as Paul said here, as he's writing this, has just arrived back from Thessalonica and brought a report. And Timothy had been sent to nurture the believers and find out how, how they were doing and then report back to Paul. And as at the writing of this letter, Timothy, as we just read, had just returned and he brought some really good news of the uh, Thessalonians believers' faith and their love. And, and it's interesting because he says he brought good news. That phrase, uh, good news, uh, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. This is the only time it's used in the, the way that's used here. Every other time in the New Testament it's used, it's used about the gospel. It's literally, uh, if we try, tried to pronounce it in English, it would be evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism from. And so it's the good news in that sense. But here, this is not the message of the, of the gospel he's talking about, but it helps us understand how significant this news was to him. That he used such a strong word to say, that this was, in a sense, he was almost like he was saying, this was such good news, it was almost like hearing the gospel again for the first time. That was how strong this, this sense is of good news uh, 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 coming to Paul's ears. And... Uh, and Timothy's report to Paul was very interesting here because there's something here that you that's easy to miss, but I think there's there's a little bit here that maybe we'll dig in and find here. But uh, Timothy's report to Paul was that their that their faith was solid and that the Thessalonian church was still growing in love in spite of the persecution and suffering that they were enduring. And it, obviously, what a relief Paul must have felt when he when he heard Timothy's report that far from being beleaguered by the opposition and the persecution and the suffering uh, and, and far from having turned against the faith, they had stayed strong in their faith and then they were growing in love. But 
What's interesting here is that in a verse we're going to read in a moment, Paul says, I want to come and fill in to fill up what is lacking. But I think we have a little bit of a hint here as to what was lacking. Um, and, and the hint of what they were lacking is found in what is missing from Timothy's report. Because he says their faith is strong, their love is growing, but there's no mention of hope. That's the very interesting thing here, because although the, the memories of the Thessalonians, have, they have pleasant memories of the missionaries, uh, there, there's some disjointedness here between what Paul remembers about the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 3. If you think back, we reread that, you can, we're not going to read it tonight, but you can go back and read that. Because Paul remembered some things about them. He remembered uh, their, their, their work produced by faith. He remembered their labor prompted by love, but he also remembered their endurance inspired by hope. So, so Paul, back there in that verse, remembers those three things about the believers. And, and, but there's a difference between that and what Timothy reports, because Timothy comes back and says, their faith and their love is strong. So I think there's a little bit of a clue there. Uh, it, it seems as if, Timothy is saying, hey, Paul, they're doing great in these two areas, but I want you to know uh, in this hope element, this hope side of it, I think maybe their hope is faltering. Now, there's reasons for that, and we're going to get into that in coming weeks, uh, but, but, but it seems as if they are a group of believers that is in danger of giving up hope. There, some crisis, and we're going to see later on uh, uh, one, of the crisis, uh, one of the crises that they were dealing with was uh, the death of some fellow believers because they had been taught by Paul that Jesus was returning and that was something important to Paul. He taught that it was a foundational part of his ministry. Um, but then some believers passed away. They died before Jesus returned and they thought maybe they were, they were going to lose out on this thing. And so they were losing hope for a number of reasons. This crisis comes and they had, they had begun to lose hope uh, hope about the future, but also they began to lose hope about who would, who would be in the future and who would be part of this kingdom of God. And as Hal Lindsey once wrote, he said, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, and about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Hope is a, a hugely important theme in this letter in fact, part of what he talks about later on is our great hope, and that's the return of Christ. Um, our blessed hope, as some people say. And, and, but, but he talks about it in different places. Paul compares the Thessalonians to those who do not have hope. So he's contrasting them. He's saying, you're not like people who have no hope. And, and, and that's in the context of their concern over those who have died prior to the Lord's coming, uh, which Paul actually describes two verses later in chapter 4, verse 15. And then in, in, in 5, 8, he, he mentions hope again, and this time in the context of, of explaining why are, they are not part of those who live in the night. And, and in that context, Paul will ask them to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. So this is an important theme, and I think there's, there's a reason why hope is woven into the teachings of Paul in, the, in this particular letter, because uh, of when Timothy, like I said, when he comes back, and he says their faith and their hope is strong, but he mentions nothing about, or faith and love is strong, but he mentions nothing about hope. Maybe that's just an indicator that, that they were starting to be tempted to, to, to give up hope. 
And, and then the final po point in Timothy's report is the attitude of the Thessalonians toward Paul. Because Paul, as we know from other weeks, previous weeks, previous uh, 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 verses in this letter, he was concerned about the effect that all the attacks of the uh, of these enemies of the gospel on the missionaries might have have had on the uh, Thessalonian church. He was he didn't know. He was wondering had they been successful in driving a wedge between Paul and this fledgling church. Paul just didn't know. You know, it's not like today where he could call a you know, grab his cell phone and call him up. He couldn't text him and say, how are you guys doing? There's no Facebook. It, 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 there was no news from Thessalonica. And so he just didn't know. And because of that, he had, he had such a longing to see the Christians at Thessalonica. He knew he had to leave earlier than he wanted to. He knew that his time was cut short and he really wanted to go back. And his, his love and affection for them was not just based merely on their past experiences together, but also on the unity that comes when believers draw upon Christ's love. There's, there's something that happens in the hearts of believers in Christ. Uh, there, there's a kinship there, so to speak, you know, that you, you meet someone and you find out that they're a follower of Christ and all this, all automatically you realize, oh, they're family. Uh, it it uh, reminds me of one of our trips uh, when I was youth pastor in Idaho, we took uh, some trips down to El Salvador for missions trips. And there was a young man that I met there on the team of the nationals. His name was Douglas and he was younger than me. And uh, we used to have a lot of fun. He, he spoke very little English. I spoke very little Spanish, um, but we tried to communicate and we would, one poor guy that spoke both, you know, translated for us the whole trip back and forth, our conversations. Um, but, uh, he, he called me Poppy, which was grandpa. And, uh, and I, and I called, I called him, uh, Miha, which is little girl. <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. And, uh, but, but you know, the thing is we, we didn't have culture in common. We didn't have language in common. We didn't have background in common. We didn't have anything in common except for one thing. Jesus. That was it. And I remember, I remember when we were taking off in that plane, leaving El Salvador. And I remember sitting there and just weeping because I was leaving my friend that I'd, I'd, I'd only known him for, you know, 10 days. But, but that's the bond that comes from the love of Christ. And this is the kind of longing that Paul has. It's not just because he's made good friends there, but there's this bond in Christ that's there. And the Thessalonians felt the same thing. They remembered the missionaries fondly and, and they, they longed to see Paul just as much as Paul longed to see them. And when Paul heard that, that was so, I'm sure that brought unbelievable joy to him to hear that, that the attacks on his character were fruitless and that these new believers, this church still loved him as deeply as ever. Um, and, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, Love is a big part of what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to come back to it a little bit later on. But I think, you know, we need to ask ourselves, do I feel a deep love for fellow Christians, whether they're friends or strangers or not? And, and if, if I'm waning in that area, then that's probably a red flag that I need to, I need to address. I need to go to the Lord and say, hey, something's not right here because I should have your love for these people. And, uh, and I just don't like to be around them, you know, which by the way, I, I, I will say that you can love people without necessarily liking everything about their personality. Um, but, uh, but 
we, we have to let Christ's love motivate us to love other Christians and to express that love in your actions toward them, which uh, that's a big thing. We'll come back to this a little bit later. It's one thing to have that love in your heart, but it's meaningless if it's not expressed. You know, uh, it's like the, a married couple that's been married for decades and, uh, and the, the wife says, honey, do you still love me? He said, I said, I love you on our wedding day. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Well, that's not a, that's not a healthy way to approach a relationship. She needs to know that just as much as he needs to know that she loves him. We, we need to express it. And it has to be also, and we'll get to this later as well. It has to be more than just our words. Uh, love, love takes action. If, if it's nothing more than words, it's pretty, it's pretty meaningless. It really is. You know, if a married couple, uh, if, a, if a guy says to his wife, hey, I love you, but then does everything, you know, on his own, excludes her from decisions, you know, doesn't do any, anything to show that he cares for her, just ignores her all the time, well, she's going to come to the realization, he says he love me, loves me, but he, he doesn't love me. Because the actions are speaking louder than the words. But I think we're going to come back to that. But let's go on to verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. So in the midst of these great difficulties and strong opposition, Timothy's report, it was like a beam of light for, for Paul in the darkness, bringing encouragement to him. And, and, it's, and, and I want you to catch the weight of what he's saying, the uh, in this, because the word translated encouraged, when we say encouraged, we think, well, that made me feel better, but it's, it's deeper than that. It, it, mean, it does not mean that he just was soothed in his spirit, but it literally means that he was given new strength, that he was, uh, it, that Timothy's report encouraged and inspired him with new life. It, he had renewed ener energy and vigor. It was, a, you know, as if the the weight of what he was, the concern for them was weighing him down and he was just, just didn't want to really do much of anything. You ever been in that, in that place in your life? And, and then he hears this news and it's like, ah, good. And that's, that's, you can even see that where he says, for now we really live since you're standing firm in the, in the Lord. And, uh, that was his reward, knowing that, that the Thessalonians were standing strong. There's, there's a couple of powerful lessons in this verse that I think it's important for it. Not, it's really not just in this verse. It's in this, this whole first three chapters of Thessalonians, first Thessalonians. And the first one is, and I want you to hear this. No Christian is immune from discouragement. Even when prepared for the reality of Satan's attack, we still have moments when our, our fears and doubts get the best of us. And I know this because Paul not just here, but in multiple places in these first three chapters, he, he experienced moments of doubt and he, and he never attempted to hide his feelings from, from the church. He didn't know how they were doing. He wondered, he was afraid. He literally said he was afraid that they were, that they had, that their faith had waned, that they were falling away. That was, he was afraid of these things. And so he, but he didn't, the thing about it was he didn't try to hide his doubts. He didn't try to hide his fear. He didn't put on his cape and, and pretend to be super missionary. You know, he, he was honest with him about what was going on. He openly expressed his doubts and fears to the believers in Thessalonica concerning whether or not they were standing firm in their faith. 
In fact, the words translated in that in verse seven as distressed and, and persecution, those words are very interesting words because most of the time in the New Testament, they are referring to outward stress, outward persecution. But those words can also be translated to, to describe inward pressure and inward pain that you're feeling, inward difficulties that you're dealing with. And, and if that's the case with Paul, then that, that makes sense. We, we don't read anything in the book of Acts corresponding with the time when this was written, for, because this was probably written when he was in the city of Corinth. And we don't read, read anything in the book of Acts about any great persecution breaking out in the city of Corinth. So I think that that could be a, a strong indicator to us that what he's really talking about here is the inward torture that he was feeling being worried uh, about these, these young believers. And, uh, and so here's my point in all this. If Paul had to deal with these kinds of things, then there is certainly no shame in admitting when we're dealing with them. If Paul said, man, I, I've been fighting these things, I've been hurt and I've been worried, I've been, I've, I've been afraid, I've had my doubts about whether or not you were standing strong in your faith, I've had all these things, and he admitted it to them and he, he had no shame, then we should have no shame in admitting when we're dealing with those things. And we've talked about this in different times in different messages, but we need to learn to take off our masks and stop pretending that everything is okay when it's not okay. You know, people there and people have twisted the scripture and twisted things around and they say, well, if you admit that there's a problem, that's a lack of faith. Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, I, I think one of the greatest stories about faith is in the Old Testament with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, you know, the king says to them, hey, you, you better bow down. We're going to give you another chance. You better bow down or you're going to be thrown into the furnace. You're going to die. And they said, King, no, there's no need to give us another chance. We're not going to do it. But what they said was a huge statement of faith because they said, we know that our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. So that tells me that faith is not denying the possibility something bad can happen. Faith is saying, I believe that God can bring me through, that he can prevent this from happening. But even if he doesn't, I know he can carry me through it. Regardless, however it goes. And so, um, you know, when we, we, and because of that misunderstanding, then sometimes we walk around thinking, you know, well, I have to put on a happy face. I got to be strong. I got to speak my faith words so that nobody knows what's going on. But the problem with that is if nobody knows what's going on, then nobody knows how to pray. You can't find any support. You can't, and not only that, when you wear your mask constantly, here's what's, what's crazy is that we all want to be loved, but it's impossible to feel loved when you're constantly wearing a mask. You know why that is? It's because when you go to home, go home at night and you lay your head on the pillow and you think to yourself, man, if they, if they knew the real me, they wouldn't love me. They love a fake me. And so it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for you to receive the love that other people are offering to you. Even the love that God offers, it's almost impossible to receive it because you're not being real and you say to yourself, they, they only love the fake me. 
This is the damage that wearing masks does. Now, now does that mean that I'm, I'm saying that every time you you know walk up to somebody, you should just dump everything on them? That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, you know, because number one, you you can't trust everybody with your stuff. How many have learned that one the hard way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got both hands up, foot up in the air as well. You know, uh, and so so you don't just tell everybody what's going on in your life because some people can't be trusted. Even if they have the label of Christian, some people are more interested in what's going on in your life so they can talk about it with other people than they are in actually helping walk you through it and pray for you. So you got to know who they are. This is one of the, one of the powerful things. This is why we believe in small groups is because it's in a smaller group setting that you can get to know one another in a deep enough way where you can begin to open up and be honest um, you know, cause you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it in the big service, you know, Sunday morning when you got, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of people there, you're not going to stand up in front of everybody and say, Hey, I just want you all to know, uh, you know, this week, uh, I'll just pull snatch something out of the air this week. I was uh, struggling with, uh, alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. This week I was, had a real tr- struggle with alcohol. Well, you're not going to do that in front of everybody. Cause it's, that's, first of all, it's foolish <laughs> and, and it's just not a safe place. But, but we have to get to the place where we develop relationships that are deep enough that give us confidence that we can trust those people around us with our doubts and fears and struggles. So, and that really leads us to, into the next powerful insight in that verse. And that is that, you know, Paul literally found his life in the well-being of others. You, you hear what, you remember what he said? He said, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. His, he really lives not because he's doing great. He said he really lives because they're doing great. And, and, and believers' lives are bound up with one another. You know, we may be, and it's not just maybe, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but God never intended us to live life alone. And, and nowhere is that truth more important than when dealing with doubts and discouragement. And if you think back in your life, if you recall seasons in your life when you were the most discouraged, more than likely, you're going to discover that those were times when you were alone or felt very alone in your life. Now, it may not be that you were isolated from the presence of people. You may have had many people around you, but you, but you probably were insulated from sharing your heart with them. You had no one to talk to. You had no one to pray with you about it. You had no one to walk with you during that time. And it's in those periods of your, of your life that you feel the most discouraged. And when you're the most discouraged is when you need people the most. And here's the crazy thing about our human nature is that when we're most discouraged, that's often when we pull back the most. And it's really the time we need to force our, push forward and make sure that we are open with those that we know really care about us. Because that's where we can find the strength and encouragement in that situation. But the thing is, human beings are very, very good. They're experts at keeping things inside. And, and, and I'll just say this. It's often especially true of men. And, and it's not a healthy thing for us guys, you know. And we, we know that. Uh, but it's very difficult. We were talking about it this just past Sunday in a, one of the small groups that, you know, uh, ladies, if, if you ask your husband or your, you know, man in your life, if you say, if you ask him, Hey, just what are you feeling? If they say, I don't know, they're probably telling the truth because 
we often feel something. We know there's some emotional thing going on there, but we can't put our finger in of what it is exactly because it's kind of like this, but kind of like that. It's kind of like this. We're not as in touch with our emotions as you are. And so sometimes we get confused. And because of that, then we, we don't do that. Then you add to that, you know, the fact that we're confused, we don't talk about it. Then you add to that, that we live in this culture that every man thinks he's supposed to be, you know, emotional Rambo. You know, where you're on your own, you can tough it, you can take it, you can beat it, uh, you can beat the system, you can do whatever. And it's just not a healthy situation. But when, when you and I learn to be real with one another, w- without making it sensational, without making it a pity party, but we learn to be real with uh, one another, we often discover that we're not alone in our discouragement or we're not alone in our pain. We're not alone in whatever's going on. And this may sound very strange, but... Oftentimes, it's encouraging simply to know that you're not the only one. Simply to know that, and part of the reason it's encouraging is because then you realize, okay, maybe it's not because something's wrong with me. Maybe this is just part of being a human being that's a follower of Christ. Maybe this is part of the growth process. And it helps us and encourages us. I mean, think about this. Try to name one great biblical saint who did not struggle with some type of pain, disappointment, discouragement, or doubt. I would wait, except that we'd be here all night because I don't think you're going to find one. Not one. So, so don't believe the lie that life will be easy and, and don't lose hope when you struggle with life's ambiguities and questions and, and all of these concerns. Nowhere does the Bible teach that to be used by God, you have to have life figured out. Thank the Lord for that. In, in fact, for God to use you, you first have to admit that you don't have life figured out. You know, an illustration from Peter's life, I think is helpful here. Peter, Peter, you remember the story. Peter had been fishing all night with little to show for his efforts. And there were actually multiple times where Jesus did a miracle like this, but this is the first time. Uh, and while, while Peter was there, he was, he was putting his gear away for the day and had a, had a terrible night fishing. And, and, and they always fished at night. Part of the reason is because uh, the night, the darkness would hide their nets and they'd catch more fish and, at the nighttime. And, but so he's putting his gear away and Jesus then gets into his boat and, and begins to teach the crowd. You remember that story? And, and so then when he finished that, Jesus gives Peter a tip tells him where to find the fish. And I love the story. I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but I love the story because, uh, because Peter's response when Jesus says, hey, you know, if you cast your nets on the other side of the boat, you're going to, that's where you'll catch the fish. And Peter's response is, uh, we fished all night. It's a nice way of saying, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. I know where the fish are. They're in the water, you know, and, you know, it, it, you say they're going to be on this side of the boat. That's just not how it works, Jesus. I know this, these things. I'm a fisherman. But then in, in submission, he said, but because you say so, out of respect for him, he said, I'm going to do it. So he did that. He cast the, the net over there. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Peter, he lets his nets down. And just as Jesus suggested, and he landed what was probably the biggest catch of his life. So big that, you know, the, the boats are sinking, that sort of thing. But while he was filling the boat with fish, conviction filled Peter's heart. 
Because in a moment that changed his life forever, Peter fell on his knees in the pile, in that pile of fish, and he called out to Jesus. And a lot of times we forget this part, but he said to Jesus, he said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Because he suddenly realized this guy's not just a regular rabbi. This guy's not just some regular teacher of the law. He's not some fly by night, by night guy that's just, you know, out here saying really nice things. Uh, uh, he, he realized this is, this is, this guy is something different. And Jesus's response to Peter came as a result of Peter's response to him because Jesus in response to him admitting that he's a sinner and saying, I don't have this figured out. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I, I, I shouldn't be even around you because, because I can sense there's something special about you and I'm a sinful man. And in response to that, what did Jesus say? He said, you know what? From now on, you're going to be catching people. So Peter saw God that day in the boat. And when you see God for who he is, we talked about this in recent weeks, the last couple Sundays. When you see God for who he is, you will see yourself for who you really are. So when he saw Jesus, he realized, I'm a sinner. Just like Isaiah, when he saw God in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, woe is me. I'm in trouble here. But here's something I want to add, something I didn't mention these last two Sundays. Here's the beauty. When you confess to God who you really are, then God makes you into the person he wants you to be. And, and we're encouraged when we read in the scripture that even Peter struggled with, with his faith. He struggled with these situations. But after he admitted his weakness and submitted to Jesus, God was able to use him in a mighty way. And, and it's heartening to learn that we're, we're not the only people that don't have life totally figured out. In fact, the truth is there is nobody that has life totally figured out. And, uh, and it's also heartening to know that because of that, God hasn't given up on us. And so you, using the same approach to encourage the Thessalonians, Paul admitted to them that he was struggling and, and he had questions and apprehensions. And, and Paul was willing to be vulnerable by sharing his fears and doubts with this infant church. And then just as Paul proved to be an encouragement to them through the message he sent with Timothy, then they in turn proved to be an encouragement to Paul by the report that Timothy brought back to him. See, when we're honest with each other, we end up encouraging one another. Let's read on verse nine. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So listen, Paul had every reason to be proud of the good work he had done in Thessalonica. He and his companions had introduced the gospel there in a very short period of time. They had planted a church that was now growing even under persecution. That was no small achievement, especially back in those days, in the early days of the church. Yet for Paul, his response was not, man, I'm so proud of what I've done. For Paul, there could only be thanks to God. 
Paul thanked God for those in Thessalonica who had come to know Christ and had held strong in the faith. Uh, he had been forced to leave while, while they were still immature believers with incomplete knowledge. And he was afraid that somehow he, because he didn't do it, they weren't going to make it. Then he realizes they're doing strong. They're doing well. They're holding strong. And what is his response? He realizes, oh, I had nothing to worry about. God had them all along. And so they had held on to their faith despite opposition and persecution. They had come through unscathed in their faith. Uh, uh, Paul really believed and lived what he preached. And that is that God alone was the source and sustainer of life in the Christian community. And so Paul, he had a great satisfaction, but his satisfaction was not that he had done a good job. His satisfaction was that what God had accomplished. He knew that it was not of men to do a spiritual work. What had been accomplished was done only by the grace of God. But he says in that passage, that part of the, one of those verses we just read, he said that, that he earnestly prayed night and day for the Thessalonians. Now, obviously, he didn't literally pray every moment of every day, night and day, but that's, a, that's an expression to help them understand that this was a constant thing on his mind. It was a constant thing in his prayers. Probably means, because in the, in the Jewish faith, uh, and, and he was obviously came out of the Jewish faith into Christianity, they would pray in the morning and they would pray in the evening. So probably even specifically saying, every time I prayed, every time I went into his presence, I was praying for, for you. And there's specific things I want to mention about his prayer. The first thing Paul prayed for is that he prayed for open doors. He prayed that God would let him and his co-workers return to Thessalonica. You remember, Satan had hindered him. We read that last week. We don't know what, what Satan did or how he kept him out, but Satan had hindered him from returning. But, but here's the thing about that. Even Satan's hindrances can only happen with God's permission. God is still sovereign Lord. You read about the book of Job, you know, in this conversation with, with, between God and, and Satan, which by the way, interesting thing, we'll, maybe we'll do a study on another time on this. Interesting thing is the whole conversation about Job was not started by Satan, but it was started by God. Uh, God initiated that whole thing that was going on. So there was something he was trying to work, trying something he was trying to do, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, but, but in, uh, uh, now I lost my train of thought cause I'm thinking about Job. Um, but, uh, oh, I, but eventually Satan said, I only loves you because you bless him. And he said, if he didn't have all these things, he wouldn't, he wouldn't serve you. And God allowed him to do the things that he did. So, so even in that, uh, Paul knew that even with Satan hindering it, that it was still God at work behind the scenes. And, and, and we can plan and we can prepare for ministry, but ultimately we are dependent on God to open and to close doors. And that's not just true missionary wise. You know, there are countries in this world that are closed to the gospel. Uh, some that are open now that used to be closed to the gospel. But it's also true when we talk about working locally. God will open and close doors locally in your life within people's uh to be able to minister to other people in their situations or in, in ministry opportunities that he opens for you. God's the one who opens and closes those doors. And Paul knew that if he was going to return to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, that God was going to be the one that would have to make it happen because only God himself 
could make the impossible possible. And though Satan had placed roadblocks in Paul's path, he did not just take that and say, oh, well, I guess, you know, I can't go back. It's over with. But it did not deter him in the least from repeatedly asking God to make a way. He continued to pray about it, even though he knew that, that at the time it was impossible for him to go. An important lesson for us to, uh, to learn here is that we have to trust God implicitly to do what is in his best, best interest and not in our best interest. He knows what he's doing. He knows the pattern he's weaving. He knows what he's trying to set up. He knows what he's preparing to do. And we have to trust him in it. And we got to remember, we are not architects of our kingdom. We are ambassadors of his kingdom. And, and we have to remember, kicking in doors that God is unwilling to open will only lead to, to disaster. Ask, ask Moses if it, what it cost him to kick in a door at Meribah. You remember when the second time they went to the rock and God told Moses the first time, he told him, strike it with a rod and the water flowed. But what did he tell him the second time? Anybody remember? Anybody? Second time he went to the rock, he said, speak to the rock and the water will flow. But Moses was upset and he hit the rock a second time. And it was that very action that kept him from going into the promised land. That rebellion against God and, and his, his trying to force the situation. Now, now to understand why that was such a big deal, it's because the rock, you can read it in Corinthians, the rock, this is totally separate, not part of our study tonight, but the rock in that situation was a symbol of Christ. And the first time striking, it was a symbol of him being beaten and him being crucified, and then the living water would flow from him. But after he did that, no striking would be necessary anymore, only to ask. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And, and so, so, you know, anyway, Moses learned that. And so we, we, we just can't, we can't try to knock doors down. We get a lot, have to let God open them. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. It means we continue to pray and it means we continue to knock and see if that door is going to open or not. We don't just sit back and say, well, God will do whatever he'll do. I'll just, you know, I'll just do nothing. But it's this constant moving forward. Um, uh, our journeys are all very different. He's going to take us all in different places. Just let God's plan be your plan. And, and don't let that, uh, that realization that he's the one doing it keep you from praying for him to open doors. But, but as you pray for that, make a commitment that you'll stay behind doors that he keeps closed, but you'll walk confidently through the doors that he opens. Second thing about his prayers, and this is not something he prayed about, but it's about how he prayed. And that is that Paul prayed specifically. Now, in praying specifically to get back to Thessalonica, Paul models an important aspect of prayer because um, we're often more comfortable with praying in general than we are with praying with specifics. Sometimes, honestly, it's, it's because we feel like we have to protect God's reputation. You know, it's like, well, if I, if I pray for this thing specifically for, with this person here, if God doesn't do it, then, you know, then God's going to look bad. And I'll just say this. God is plenty big enough to deal with protecting his own reputation. He doesn't need your help. 
you know, and so there's nothing wrong with that. I think we need to pray more specifically. Now, with that said, I will also say there are people out there and say, well, you didn't get your answer because you didn't pray specifically enough. You know, it's like, like somebody says, uh, <laughs> I can't remember. It's a true story. I can't remember all the details now. It just, just came to my mind uh, about a woman who was angry. She was talking with an evangelist. She was angry because, uh, because her husband had gotten very sick and she prayed that God would, 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 uh, would not let him die while he lived, but then he ended up being a vegetable for years. And she was angry at God because, because she felt like God answered her prayer and that, and, and that if, if she had been more specific, you know, and all this stuff, well, let's just, I'm going to say that, I, that that is not the God I serve. He, he, he's not going to be like, oh, he's not like a genie. You know what I'm talking about? You, you know the stories of the genies in the bottle where they rub the lamp and they get three wishes, but every time they make a wish, the genie twists it in a certain way to make sure that they get what they ask for, but it actually is a painful situation for them. God's not like that. He's not looking up there saying, well, you know, you asked for healing, but uh, you didn't ask for him to actually have good quality of life. So I'm just going to give you what you asked for. That's not, that's not God, you know? That's, that's just silly to say that, that if you don't ask for it specifically, because that's, that's a picture of prayer that makes prayer into something like a magic spell or something where like, if I say exactly the right thing, then God's got to do it. Well, that's just, that's just not the case. But it is good to pray specifically because when we pray specifically, one of the things we're doing is we're bringing the details of our lives into God's presence. And, and Paul expresses his honest desire to God, but that does not mean that if he doesn't get to go back to Thessalonica, that God, his prayer has not been answered. It, it may not have been answered the way he wanted, but every prayer is answered. You know, uh, every prayer is answered. Sometimes he says yes. Don't you love those times? Sometimes he says no. Anybody here like to hear the word no? Sometimes he says, wait. Because sometimes he says, you're not ready. It's not a forever no, but it's not right now. Now, that always, I always think about my youngest daughter when she was two. and We were getting in the car and put her in the back seat and she got very angry. And, and threw a fit uh, because she wanted to drive. Well, I told her no. Thankfully, all of Rena was happy that we said no. But that wasn't a forever no. That was a no that said, no, you're not ready for that. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's work on diapers first, you know, that kind of thing. Actually, by then, she was probably out of them. But anyway, uh, and, and that's... I got, I got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but, but just because you, when you pray specifically, just because God doesn't do what you ask does not mean he didn't answer. But if he says no, it's for a reason. And it may be a no, not yet. You need to wait a while. Uh, but, but when we do pray specifically, the other thing about praying specifically is that when he does say yes, those wonderful moments when he does say yes, then there is no doubt whatsoever that it's an answer to that prayer. Right? See, because if I just say, Lord, bless Chuck. Well, you know, he, 
he, he might come and tell me some good thing that happened to him. And it's like, well, I think that maybe, maybe that was an answer to that prayer. But what if I'm really specific? What if I know that he has a need and he needs $1,000 by Thursday, tomorrow? Chuck's back there saying, can we make this a real prayer? And I pray and say, God, I'm asking. I don't know how, but would you do a miracle and supply this need by tomorrow? Then if a check shows up in his, in his mailbox for $1,000 the next day, there is no question that that's an answer to that prayer. Right? So, so being specific helps us when we see the answer when it comes. And, and, and because we see the answer more clearly, it also helps us giving glory to God that much more. Because we're not just saying, well, that was kind of a coincidence, whatever, because it's just very specific. And so uh, being a specific in your prayers, it is not a demand for a specific answer, but it's actually more like a search for God's guidance. You know, it's, it's more like saying, because how did Jesus teach us to pray? He always, and how he, did he pray in the garden of Gethsemane? He, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He made the request and he taught us to pray, Father, your will be done in heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So we always pray that. And that's not, some people say that's a lack of faith. I mean, these hyper, some of the hyper faith people, and it's ridiculous because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, I believe it shows a greater amount of faith because if I say, Lord, you do whatever you want, that means I trust him to do, uh, even if what he wants is something that's going to be painful for me. So that's greater faith to say that. And, and so this is not a demand for a specific answer, but I'm actually saying, Lord, this is what I'm asking for. Nevertheless, let your will be done. And, and what I'm doing is I'm recognizing that, that my desires may be misguided and I may be asking for the wrong thing, or I might be asking for the right thing at the wrong time. Uh, there, there's all kinds of things that might be played in, play into that. But it's it's not, you know, like we said earlier, it's not like, you know, some magic potion where if we just get the words right and we pray specific enough that we can get whatever we want. Uh, I, I like this quote from E. Stanley Jones, great missionary uh, of old. He, he said this about prayer, and I, this is one of my all-time favorite prayer quotes. He said, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. So Paul prayed specifically and we should pray specifically too. The third thing about his prayer is that Paul prayed for the continued spiritual growth of the Thessalonian believers. Paul asked God to allow them to go back to fill up anything that may still be, have been missing in the Thessalonians' face, faith, in their faith. He, he wanted to give them further teaching. He wanted to help them move on to deeper doctrines. He wanted these believers to mature in Christ because as he saw it, his work in Thessalonica was incomplete. He, he knew they were still an infant church. He knew they had much to learn as this point, at this point in time, and he desired for them to be spiritually strong. And that was his calling to help them grow. And, and so uh, 
his prayer expresses a fervent request that God would enable them to mature because he, he knew their faith had to be grounded in God's truth. He knew that questions still remained about the Lord's return, about spiritual leadership, about interpersonal relationships, about spiritual disciplines. And, and because of that, he's going to address these themes later on and as the letter progresses. But Paul knew that they were still lacking their faith. They still needed some help and they needed God's wisdom to face the many challenges that were confronting them. In essence, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> he was a pastor who yearned for the spiritual growth of, of his people. Excuse me just a minute. <coughs> now, before I move to the next thing real quickly, I just, I just want you to notice something in this verse about his prayer, and then we're going to get back to his prayer. I want you to notice that because the believers had been faithful, Paul's life had been renewed and revived. And I just want to point out with this, and I'm not going to spend a very, very short period of time, I'm not going to spend any time really to speak on this. And that is to remind you, that you can be a joy to your spiritual leaders or you can be a burden. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 from the message. I like the way it puts it. Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are, <coughs> they are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? I can hear it here to tell you, not just from me as your pastor, but in every other uh, every pastor that you have, every other spiritual leader, that the, there's no greater joy for a pastor <coughs> than to see the people under their care grow and flourish in the things of God. It's all we want. And when we see somebody responding to the gospel, when we see somebody growing in the Lord, that makes everything worthwhile. Because I'm here to tell you, being in ministry is not for the faint of heart. You better be called to it. I believe that with my heart. I, I've had young people come to me and say, I, I feel like I want to go into ministry. And I look at them, and this is going to sound strange to you, but I've told them, well, I'm here for you. But I've told them at times, if you can do anything else, do it. The reason I say that is because if you're called, you can't do anything else. But if you can do anything else, you're probably not called. And if you're not called, it's going to eat you alive. Or you're going to be a you're going to destroy the body of Christ. And so anyway, here's the next thing for which we need to move on from which Paul prayed. Paul prayed that the love of the Thessalonians would increase. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You know, our society is so confused about the concept of love. I, I read this about uh, a young man named Tony. Tony was smitten by Cupid's arrow. He had fallen head over heels in love with this girl. He was enamored. He was, as they say, Twitter painted. And, she, and so he wrote to his beloved the following letter expressing his heartfelt devotion. This is what he wrote. My dear, you are the sunlight to me. My every thought is filled with thee. I would do anything to be with you. I would climb the highest mountains, swim the swiftest rivers, and cross the widest deserts just to be at your side. Your beloved Tony. P.S. I'll see you Saturday if it doesn't rain. <laughs> 
we, we have moved the idea of love from something of great value, something that makes demands of us, something that is self-sacrificing, something to be diligently guarded, and we have turned it as a culture into something cheap and irresponsible and, te- and easy and often even sleazy. Uh, but love is marvelously complex. Love is caring. Love is giving. It's wishing for the best of another. Uh, even if it costs you, it's doing all you can to provide the best for that person. It's, it, it, it's sometimes it's inciting another to strive for the best when he or she is willing to settle for less. Love requires one's entire being. It's enduring. It's long suffering. It continues even when faced with rejection. And, and the marvelously complex thing about love is that none of those qualities by any of the, by by themselves makes make up love yet the lack of any of those qualities will destroy love love requires work along with their work of faith paul commended the thessalonians for their labor of love their their love for one another and for the lord had been tested in the crucible of persecution and had stood strong and and paul prays that their love may increase and abound now uh, if, I don't know if you have the verse in front of you, but who is the source of the love that he's talking about? Now you're in church, so always guess God first. You know, you, know, you always say Jesus right off the bat because, because uh, it's like the, the little boy that was in a Sunday school class and the Sunday school teacher said, all right, everybody, what's small, furry, has a long tail and gathers nuts every, every fall? A little boy raised his hand and said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus, you know, <laughs> so you always guess Jesus first. But but he said, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow. That's the source of it. It's not something that we conjure up or that we can make happen. And then the second question is who was to be the recipient of the love? He, he said, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. And then he goes on, and here's the part that will get us. He says, and for everyone else. He just had to throw that part in, right? Anybody have in your life, uh, you have anybody in your life that is an EGR? That's what I call them. You know what an EGR is? Extra grace required. (laughs) You have anybody like that? And you know, sometimes there are people in our lives that are just hard. They don't, our love doesn't come naturally to us. But if we connect to the source of that love, that love can begin to overflow even toward them. Uh, and if we are full of God's love, it will overflow to other people. It's, it's, not, it's not enough merely to be courteous to others. You know, listen, if you're a person of love, you should be courteous. You should be kind to the people who serve you in restaurants. You should be kind to the person behind the counter at the fast food place. You know, I mean, you should hear the stories from that I've heard from uh, my family at Chick-fil-A, you know, people getting mad and throwing drinks at servers and stuff like that. It's like as if as if they they intentionally got their order wrong, you know, hey, let's mess this person's order up. And they're so angry that they they, you know, there's throwing food and stuff. And and if, if you're a follower of Christ and I ever see you doing that, I'm going to be so disappointed in you and I'm going to be praying for you. In fact, I might even have to call you in and talk with you about that and say, hey, What's going on in your life? Because something's not right here. But, but it's, it's not enough. You, you should be kind and courteous, but that's not enough. We must actively and persistently show love to people around us. Uh, and our love should be growing 
continuously. You never reach a point in your spiritual journey where your love stops growing. As you grow in your relationship with Christ, you will also be growing in your love for one another. What, what did Jesus say in John 13, 35? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let me just say this. If your capacity to love has remained unchanged for some time, then go to God and ask him to fill you again from his never-ending supply. And then look for opportunities to love people on purpose. I mentioned earlier, we're going to come back to that. It has to be more than words. It's got to be action. This is the key. I love the phrase loving people on purpose because we often love people around us and we feel that emotion in our heart. We, we honestly do love them, but often they will not know it unless we do something purposeful to show it. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but I did. Um, know it and show it there so so that you know it's a great illustration for a church you know we have a very loving body of believers here as a church um but but we can't even get better because we can learn how to not just feel that love but to find ways to show them that we love them on purpose that's the kind of love he's talking about and that, that the bible talks about uh, so look for opportunities to love people on purpose. Look for ways that you can serve. Look, look for little things. If somebody says, man, I'm so thirsty, you know, and you know they love Diet Coke, go get them a Diet Coke without even telling them and just bringing it to them. You know, that's a silly little way. But you know, that's loving somebody on purpose. The, the third thing Paul, Paul actually prayed for, he prayed for strength for the Thessalonians. He said in verse 13, may, the, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The, 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 the challenges of living out the faith in, the, in a city like Thessalonica were great. Much like the world in which we live today, the Thessalonians were faced with constant pressure to conform to the culture around them. However, Christians must view their, the world in a, in a different way. The culture says, if you want to get along, you got to go along. You got to blend in. You got to fit in. But God has a much different perspective. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12, he said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. And, and John put it this way in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. So if the Thessalonians were going to walk worthy of the Lord, then they were going to need help. And to this end, Paul prayed that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God. And he prayed for this inner strength for the believers that came from God so that they would walk in a way that was blameless and holy. Now, I want to, I want to make sure we understand what holy really means. The base meaning of holy, to be holy, is to be set apart for God, for his service. In its base, you go back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle. All those things, you know, they had the different pieces of furniture. Why were they considered holy? Because those things were set apart for God and God alone. 
And that's really the essence of holiness. It's not about a list of rules and regulations. You know, certainly there are things, you know, sins we should avoid. There are ways that we should live. But, but, but holiness is not just, it's not an attainment by the few. What it is, it's an act by which God sets each of us apart for himself. So he pulls you, he saves you, he sets you apart. And just like he said to Isaiah, he said, now you are holy. Now, we have done nothing to make ourselves holy, but he has given us the righteousness of God in Christ. And in God, Christ took our sin and gave us his holiness, his righteousness. And he sets us apart and sets us and said, you are now holy. You're, you're, you're forgiven, you're clean, and you're set apart for me and me alone. And in this action of God, we are blameless. We are accepted. We are loved by God to the very day of Christ's coming. And what Paul has in mind here, and this is where I think it would help a lot of us with this idea of holiness if we could get this. He is not talking about the process of becoming holy. But he's talking about a standing because they were already holy. He's saying, God has made you holy. He's set you apart. And because of what he has done, live a life that is worthy of that. Live a life that reflects what God has done in you. It's not about you trying to muscle up and be good and do all these right things. It's about saying, listen, God has saved me. God has set me apart. Now I want my life to reflect what he has done and that's what it really means. And when I do that, then I'm going to avoid sin. I'm going to walk in the light and not in the dark. I'm going to do the things that scripture talks about. In other words, he prayed that they would actually live in the light of the holiness that God had already given to them. Thus, this assurance of their standing before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ was actually to be their motivation for faithful living. Instead of fearing his coming, they could look expectantly for it. And Paul will have much more to say about that in, verse, in chapters 4 and 5. Um, but I want to close with this. He, he has this phrase in here, and this is one of the things the, the Lord just seems to have been pressing this on my spirit these last several weeks, and I've seen it uh, in other ministries in different places. It just seems like what the Spirit seems to be saying to the church, talking about the return of Christ. But he, he uses a phrase, he says, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And that speaks of a confidence that we have concerning his coming. Because he did not say, if our Lord Jesus comes. comes. He said, when our Lord Jesus comes. The return of Christ is an absolute certainty. God has proven his credibility by fulfilling every prophecy concerning the Messiah in one man, Jesus Christ. And there are hundreds of prophecies. The, the odds of one man fulfilling all those prophecies are astronomical. You can see the hand of God at work in this. And, and because he has fulfilled these prophecies, and not just those, many, many other prophecies in the word of God, because he has fulfilled those prophecies, we know that his word concerning the, the, the return of Christ is trustworthy, that it is absolutely true, because if he has never failed to keep his word in the past, we can trust him to keep his word in the future. And he says, Jesus is coming. He is returning for his bride. And my intense desire as a 
not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus, is that when Christ returns, that he would find me set apart for his service, working in his fields, and fulfilling the calling that he's placed on my life. And that's my prayer for you too. Would you bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you do make us holy. And Lord, as you have cleansed us, you have saved us, you have set us aside for your purposes, God, help us to live lives that reflect that. We know we're going to fail from time to time, but God, when those times come, help us not to tolerate it, help us not to make excuses for it, but help us to confess those things to you, to get those things right, and to move forward with you. And God, I pray that as we live in this way, that this world would see the beauty of Jesus Christ reflected in our lives, and that they would begin to have a deep hunger for the truth and the, and the life and the holiness and all of the things that you are that we have in our lives because of you. And Lord, I pray that our lives, along with our words, would be faithful witnesses and we would, we would be working in your field, we would be set apart for your purpose, that we'd be carrying out the calling you have in our lives until the day Christ returns. And we thank you for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.